Hello, this is Melissa, and it is Real History on April the 13th, 2023, and we're back with a part two with Darren from South Africa. Hello, Darren. Hi. Hi, Melissa. Hi. Thank thanks you. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. Yes. Thanks for doing a part two, because I, I, I wanted to hear more about your life in South Africa. I think that would be interesting, and also, just... Before we launch into that, you've been emailing Alan forever. I mean, it feels like your name is a name that I always knew, but I wanted to find out how long you were listening to Alan when you discovered his talks. Melissa, I am a bit foggy on that. Yeah. I am trying to remember. I, I, I think it might have been 2008. Mm. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe even even later. I guess it's, I guess it is possible that that you weren't there from the from my beginning then, but it does seem like it does so. seem that yeah. you have been around for a long, long time emailing Alan. Yeah, I remember when I came across Alan's work. It was a, a very badly recorded. It was one of his earlier talks, and it was on some website. I can't remember what it was. I was busy studying the the New Age movement for myself. I've always been intrigued with these people that purport to be experts or gurus or uh, guides or philosophers. And I like to go through the material. And I was, you know, people confuse Alan with Alan uh, Watts, the Englishman that I think mm-hmm. died in the 70s, I think. Yes. And I... I remember being fascinated with Alan Watts because he was such a smooth talker. I remember catching him out in some of his reading material, and I was sort of like, you know when you admire someone that can pull the wool over somebody's eyes, in a sense, because they do it so well? You don't admire them, but you you think, hmm, now that's quite smart, you know, and... Um, <laughs> A lot of people are, are really going to swallow that one because he was talking about, I remember it was it was Oprah and it was all about the power of now. And he had this guy called, uh, what's his name, Eckhart Tolle? Eckhart Tolle, somebody, somebody, yeah, Tolle. Eckhart Tolle, and I, I remember thinking to myself, gee whiz, you know, here's a guy who is talking the greatest bliss and happiness that you could imagine. And yet look at his body language. Look at his face. Listen to his voice. This is the most this is the most depressed person on planet Earth. Telling me how happy I can be if I just pretend that there's no past or future. Uh, so basically if I took Eckhart Tolle seriously, I could be standing in a I could be in a coal mine, whacking away at the walls, being in complete bliss, just enjoying the moment, you know. And Alan Watts, I can't remember the sentence, but it was so well done. It contained, you know, like Churchill said, a mystery within a, an, an enigma, within a puzzle. Um, puzzle. It was a bit like that. And I, I decided to go on the Internet and just look up something. And I can't remember the exact what happened, but I just stumbled by complete accident into a blurb of Alan's. As other people have said, you listen, and then you listen a little longer and you think, my word, this 
this is the real this person has has it you know <laughs> and um and to some degree i recognized in alan he was speaking i think other people have said the same thing he was speaking my mind but just more eloquently and he had more detail and and real references and i found it fascinating that that people uh, could get to the same conclusion to reach the same truth that finds itself and in some aspects i had reached my conclusions through similar pathway to alan and and in other things it would be completely different but alan had a way of you know when you try and voice something that you know but you're not good at speaking you can't really get it across but in your own um subconscious or your own private mind that which you can't speak is understood quite well here was somebody who was speaking it so eloquently into in, into into the world and i thought well how on earth have i missed have i missed this guy <laughs> and then i i had no idea about podcasts i didn't know that um you could use your phone and you could download these things and listen to them later so i managed to find some more material of elens online via the web but they were really low quality soft lots of noise and uh, noisy sort of um hissing in the background that type of thing and then eventually i discovered how to use podcast addict or itunes and that type of thing but yes it was via studying the new age actually it's interesting mm. well i wanted to talk for a while about south africa you were born there you live there and mm. it's such an integral part of this agenda and you know it's that was cecil rhodes and it was rhodesia before it was south africa this was mm. cecil rhodes was funded by a rothschild for mm. much of the great work that he did there and i just thought i'd let you talk a little bit about what comes to mind about south africa and your experiences as well um, i'll try the first thing that i wanted to just get out there is that when i compare my history to some of your guests i, I realize that i've been very 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 fortunate to have a very uneventful personal history <laughs> <laughs> i've i've i was born to two loving parents who got married young and i was their first born i was born into what became a middle class family and i've gone to a middle class school i've been i've had some tertiary education and i've had permanent employment and my life has been very smooth sailing very very smooth sailing and when you are very very young and you're growing up in a country like south africa that's in the middle of a terrible terrible system called apartheid you firstly you don't know that you that you're in that system you you completely oblivious to it and you get a little bit older and you start mixing with the world a little bit more but the the thing about south africa and segregation 
is that the segregation didn't just follow um, color lines. You know, you had black people and white people living in different areas, but you had Indian people who had their own particular areas, and English people and Afrikaans-speaking people also were separate to some degree. You know, different schools. You know, you went to an English-speaking school or an Afrikaans-speaking school. So if you were born into a white English family, you might not really come into contact with Afrikaans people at all <laughs> until maybe high school. And that um, was your, that's your, how, your background was yes. white English family? That White English family, so an English environment. And up until a certain age, you wouldn't have really known that you were living in Africa in the real sense until you got mm-hmm. old enough you know, to start noticing your environment. So if you ask somebody who lives in South Africa about what, what it's like to live in South Africa, there's no one answer. It's so different, so absolutely different. The system of apartheid was really, when you start uh, looking back on the history of it, how organized it really was. You had, you had black peoples of different language groups in different areas as well. And then in, in this country, we have a different terminology for, you know, in America or Europe, a colored person is what you would think of as an African or a black person. Uh, in South Africa, a colored person is, of, is often of a mixed descent. So they, um, they will be a mix between black and white. Or they will be um, what they call Cape Malay, who were brought into the country via the Dutch East India Company and uh, later the British East India Company. So, yeah, we have a further delineation. We have white, black, colored, and then you have Indian. And under apartheid, you had certain groups were given... I forget what it was. Now, my father would be able to explain it perfectly, but... I think at one point, for example, Indian people uh, were classified as, oh, hang on now, I forget. I think Chinese people were later on designated as honorary whites. So at some Mm. point, Chinese people were granted the privileges of the white population. I think Indians were also... um, don't quote me on this, I'm, I, I think I'm going to get it horribly wrong, but Indian people also were, I think, later granted uh, a little bit more status. This is just purely a guess here, but I understand yeah. that the way the world management system mm. has been run and still is in many parts of the world, that the Indian peoples and Chinese peoples are often and still are being used as a management class brought in to be a, a uh, management or a bureaucracy class. Is this what the, the function that was... I, I don't see it. No. I don't okay. think here. No. Do you know anything I about the history of Indians and, and the Chinese into South Africa? Well, the Indians were brought in to work... They, you know, your Indian community primarily concentrates its biggest population on the north coast of KwaZulu-Natal. So from Durban upwards, you'll find, I think, the largest Indian community outside of India is actually there. Mm -hmm. And they were brought in originally, as far as I understand it, to work 
as indentured servants on mm. um, the sugarcane fields. So they were dirt poor. They were essentially hired labor, but really they were indentured servants. And slowly but surely, they uh, managed to fight for some autonomy for themselves. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, even though the white population during apartheid was quite the privileged group, I think um, a certain percentage of the Indian population had achieved quite a bit of autonomy to 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 move on into the middle class. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese, but, um, do you know why the, the, the Chinese were brought into the country? Uh, I don't think there's a tiny of tiniest Chinese community in South Africa. Mm-hmm. I know it, in my hometown of Port Elizabeth there was a sizable community that was relocated under apartheid. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's even a little museum for them uh, along the beachfront. I, I don't know the initial uh, reason for bringing them in, but it was probably to do with labor mm-hmm. and possibly moving uh, products uh, to the east. Okay. But the Chinese influence in South Africa back then was minuscule, absolutely mm-hmm. minuscule. And even in modern South Africa now, there is not a strong Chinese uh, element at all. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, you know, you might see a, a very, very strong Chinese community moving into Canada, but I think it's for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that the, yeah. there is a stronger Chinese presence that is being encouraged in other parts of Africa. So, in, um, in terms of you know uh, company ownership and that kind of thing, what the, related to what um, they call the Silk Road? Yeah, China wants to expand its influence mm-hmm. in the world, and Africa sits on oodles and oodles of lovely resources. Mm-hmm. So, what a lot of these northern African countries are doing is that, in exchange for Chinese expertise, in other words, China comes in and has all the resources, they can mine all the resources they want in exchange for helping that country establish an infrastructure. So it's the mm-hmm. establishment of certain industry along with roads. And I must say the Chinese have built some stunning roads in Africa. I think, you know, even now you could get into an ordinary sedan and drive from Cape Town to Cairo along beautifully... Um, Hard roads, you know, where mm-hmm. uh, 30, 40 years ago you'd need a 4x4. Four four. Mm-hmm. So the Chinese are definitely, well, the, the African nations are selling out uh, their own people because I think the original deal was China comes in and has access to the raw materials and the Chinese would help the African countries upskill and to build their own roads. But I think the Chinese have sort of taken the extra step and said, no, 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 no. We'll bring our own people in. So what you'll have, you'll have big teams of Chinese people in different parts of Africa building roads and various things. But they don't stay there. Once they've done their, their bit, they go back to, they go back to China. Mm-hmm. So China is kind of telling Africa, without saying it, that we don't think you're good enough to build the roads and these kind of things. You're too slow. We want your resources. We're just going to come in and do it. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like it, well, tough. So your ordinary African who is seeing their country being invaded, in a sense, by Chinese people who boss them around, 
take their resources. These ordinary African people, as far as I can tell, are no better off than they were before. Right. Yet the people that run the country, or they get, they're getting all the goodies, you know, and that seems to be, uh, unfortunately, the way of Africa, where the resources get sculpted. A few people in Africa, uh, in the government areas, get paid off, and the ordinary people are still today, you know, exactly where they started. So it's very unfair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But South a- South Africa is different. Than- South Africa's so, yeah. South Africa is it's a lot different. When I was reading Carol Quigley's his two books. Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-American Establishment, which they read very, very similarly to each other. You see how the importance of the uh, the gold fields and the diamond fields, how important they were uh, in the creation of an expansion of the British or the or this British Empire, as it was, as it were. And then slowly you saw the American influence coming into the Milner Group, and you see the private interests operating South Africa more clearly when you read that book. In this country, historically, there's been a, a guy, uh, I'm sure you know of Jan Smuts. Mm-hmm. Jan Smuts, uh, everyone in South Africa who sort of is old enough to remember will sort of say, Jan Smuts was a fantastic guy. He was a real, he was the last true statesman that South Africa ever had, etc., etc. And yet, they don't realize that, at least according to uh, Carol Quigley, Jan Smuts was a globalist of, he was one of the most vigorous globalists, he was a complete fanatic. You know, Jan Smuts would, with one, out of one side of his mouth, would stand up and defend the position of the Afrikaans community, the Boers, and at the very same time he'd be uh, selling them out to the British. And I don't think a lot of South Africans know that at all about Jan Smuts. Well, um, I, I, I don't, I, yeah. I don't know a lot about him, but I think he was incredibly instrumental in mm. br- the uh, UN and bringing South Africa oh, yes. into the UN. And it, it, he, he, he was, I mean, as you say, he was a globalist and internationalist player. Mm. It's very interesting because Carol Quigley brings out in the book just how he played, because at that time, you know, you had a strong growing desire amongst the Afrikaners to uh, form their own nation state and to shake off the British. Smuts would say all the right things, but at the same time, he was completely doing the opposite. I just found that quite interesting because it's something that I learned about the country that I live in. I wouldn't have really studied it unless Alan had directed me to that material. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever read that book, you realize that it's a it's a big task. It's quite a it's quite a quite a thick book. Yes, I, I and, made my way through and, it. <laughs> and it and it, it name drops like crazy. So every paragraph there's three, four names coming in at a time. And it's quite difficult to remember it. But the gist of it is that um you know, you've had a large body of private uh, you've had banking, you've had corporations, you've had royalty and the media across the world acting as a organized you can see how this Milner group and its associates linked up religion uh, the universities the media the royalty corporations and how they all you can see how they all 
play as one body and how, how intermingled they are. And the book also comes and brings and shows you how the liberal side would play off for a while and then they'd bring in the, the conservative side. And that book, uh, Tragedy and Hope, it's essential reading. It um, is. I I think it is yeah. the essen- You know, pretty much the essential book to to get mm. an overview of what's gone on. You know, twentieth century history for sure. But you know, some people say, yeah. "Well, I, you know, it's thirteen hundred pages. I can't do that." But yeah, I'll always suggest you know that Tragedy and Hope is a book that you spend a year on. Exactly. Y- you read yeah. it. You that's the only book that you read that year. And then you do all of the homework. The names will take you on. A, the Anglo-American establishment is a much shorter book, but Tragedy and Hope, you get this really sweeping yeah. mm. history he lesson. Explains the, yeah, he gives you the explanation into the double-entry accounting, the, the financial side. Anglo-American establishment tends to concentrate more on the, the actual people. Something when I've very... When I've, really read the book for the first time I forget his name he was a journalist he was one of the the three original I don't know if you can remember there were three of the original inner circle I don't um, remember that but he was just um, he was just a journalist you know and the book doesn't give any sort of extra background into this character and yet he was mingling with the most important people in the world with mm-hmm. extraordinary power and he's this just a journalist and you have to think to yourself well I wonder where he where he lies in, in, in regards to relations physical family relations to other important figures and then you realize that the editors of newspapers are critically important figures yes in world government um, you know, you think they are just an editor of a newspaper, but they actually have, they have got such depth of knowledge of the um, agenda. They are very, very important people. And they sit in the background, no one pays any attention to them. No, um, uh, they are, they're integral. And I mean, the they, tragedy yeah. and hope was, uh, yeah. not, not everyone will know this, but Carl Quigley was a Georgetown mm. University professor. He was mentor to mm. uh, Bill Clinton, amongst many other politicians. Oh, yeah. And mm. he had he was given access to the archives of the Council on Foreign Relations, which is the American branch of the Royal Institute of International Affairs. So, why do you think he was allowed to to publish his material? Well, I, I'm not so sure that he. Remember, they dis, they had the plates of it destroyed. I mean, I I think that he was yeah. given access. He wrote this. I'm not sure that that anyone thought that he was going to dive in quite so deep or reveal as much as he did. Mm. And he said yeah. that, um, it, it, you know, Carl Quigley was a believer. He was a believer in globalism and internationalism, and he even said that he so approved of what these groups were doing and that it needed to be known, it needed to be publicized. Oh, well, yes. Yeah. I do remember that. He was, he was, he truly did agree with the goal, but he disagreed on some of the methods. 
He disagreed he on some of the methods, and mm-hmm. he also. But mm-hmm. one of the key disagreements that he had was that he felt mm-hmm. that that this needed to be revealed. And he there were some other interesting points too that he made. Yeah. I don't have the exact quote in my head, but he. Mm-hmm. There's something if you know what you're reading because he doesn't just hammer it on the nose, but he yeah. essentially says that both parties left whatever country you're looking at. If you're looking at the left or the right or the conservative versus the liberal, that all mm. of the key players, the key figures on either side, are vetted. Their hand, they're selected way in advance yes. of when they are actually presented to the stage and so he yeah. reveals he reveals a dialectical process on how we're managed that I don't think he was supposed to yes he does it so well in actual fact we all of us who understand this should go back to that book and start putting in uh, links to the and references to the book because you know he points out that members of the Molnar group Represented both sides of the political aisle and mm-hmm. uh, even both sides of religion. You know, mm-hmm. the, the Protestant and or the Catholic. You know, they were all joined at the hip. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard. It's it, it's if there's not much material out there that literally proves it. No. And um, it's something maybe that maybe um, not sure. Um, could, and now are you giving? That would be a lot of hard work. That's the war and peace of not sure then, I think. One of the interesting things too, there were little, as I recall, I haven't opened up the book in years, but I think there were like little addendums or afterwords in the book. One of them was just a very simple thing on young people. He was speaking of university age men and women and this oh, yeah. was the mid-60s, and what he was talking mm. about were the class of people whose children, their boys and girls, would go to uh, the better universities. Yeah. And I was, I was really struck by this because it's, he's revealing something about the culture all the way back in the 60s. He was talking about the casual mm. sex that you would find. Oh, yeah. He, yeah, yes, he was talking about mm. within that class of people, the... Oh bonding for life that this was kind of an alien concept and that the sex had a role of you know you you were shared amongst a group of friends and I, I found that to be very interesting because you the people at the base of the pyramid were always given a different morality than the morality mm. of those at the top of the pyramid or in the, at the eye. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we are the quaint people, the mm-hmm. little people, the quaint people yeah. uh, who fret and worry about little things, but they are the adults uh, who can do what they want. Yes. Yeah, Melissa, you know, getting back to, to South Africa, I'll try and speak to it because you live in it and you forget how, you forget how it, it feels quite normal to you, even though you know it, it is, it's, it's a terrible system. So let me try and go through from when I was young. I remember going to high school, and we all had to learn, depending on where you were in, in South Africa, white people were required to learn an indigenous language. So 
you know, I lived in Johannesburg for a short while and I had to take up Sutu, mm. um, which I started for about a year. And then I, the family relocated to the Eastern Cape and I had to start learning Kosa. So even though the cultures were separate, there was still an effort made by the government of the day for people to at least understand each other. Although I think it was mostly on a, a surface level because even though you learnt the language, the joke was you had no one to really talk to you <laughs> with it. <laughs> so what's the point? You never retained much of it. And in my high school, there were two black boys my age. They were allowed to be in the white school because their parents were important people in the in the black homeland area. And at that time, you had you had a, a, a two black homelands. Uh, in the Eastern Cape. One, one was called the Siskai, and the other one was called the Transkai. Mm. And um, I think the two, the two guys, I think their parents were of some kind of importance in the local government. And so they were allowed to come to our school. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there you, you learned very quickly that the, these two guys are just another two ordinary guys who we got on very well with and you know in practical terms if you just leave people be they'll get along most of mm-hmm. the time so the two that those two black boys got into fights or got into arguments no more or no less than any of the scraps that boys in general would get into you know between white boys mm-hmm. and um, they were never singled out for their race uh, at all. And then growing up, uh, as I left, well, I matriculated a high school in 91. And for the four years prior to that, the boys would start getting their call-up papers to the army. It was it was involuntary. You got called up to serve your, your national service for, I think it was a year or two. I think by my time, I think it might have been two years. You had to serve military service. I think starting in standard, I think three years before matric, I had already found out that I would be having to serve as a military policeman. I'd have to be sent off to Pretoria to do my my military service. And the thing is, is that if you could prove that you were going to go for higher education, tertiary education, you could write a letter in and postpone it. So you could get out of military service, but... They'd always come knocking on the door asking for, you know, where are you now? What are you doing? Type of thing. So I went to um, a Technicon, which is a lower sort of level of university. And I never ended up serving my military service because in 1994, the whole apartheid structure came to an end. And uh, Nelson Mandela was sworn in as, as president. And uh, it was a massive event. I'm sort of trying to think back on it as a as a 16, 17 year old going through the process but it was a, a time where a lot of people were worried that the country could break into a massive civil war a lot of the white people were very very worried that all the black people would come and murder them and kill them and everything like that and so there was an exodus of a, of a, a minority of white people a large sort of minority um, with most most people sort of choosing to immigrate to Australia, some to the United States, 
and some to the UK. But on the whole, most white South Africans stayed. And things turned out, relatively speaking, none of, none of their worst fears came to be. The majority of black people were, if I was in their shoes and having been treated the way they were treated systematically, I think I would have been a far more angry. And I think, you know, I think a lot more militant. I think, I think it shows a great restraint actually was displayed overall amongst, amongst the black population. And I think even still today, where a lot of the older population, um, you know, they, they, they missed the opportunity to get educated. So even up until today, their lives haven't improved monetarily at all. For a huge amount of black South Africans, at the moment the ANC are probably, ah, I don't know, they've probably got about 40 to 45% of the country voting for them. That'll keep them in power. But when Mandela first came into power, I think the popularity, I think it was a 70% or 80% vote for the ANC. And they have just been systematically driving the country deeper and deeper into, into uh, just mismanagement. They have driven a lot of people into poverty. The strange thing that you'll get, and it's actually it's quite sad, but a lot of your... I've actually haven't even asked. It's been volunteered to me where you'd have a, an older African gent and he'd say to you, you know, things were better under apartheid because mm-hmm. we all had work, etc., etc. Et That's a very telling statement when they are forced to say something like that. You know, it shows how little of the black majority rule has really done for the average black person. And really, the middle class has shrunk. The amount of, um, the small clique of very, very, very wealthy and corrupt um, African leaders are practicing the worst kind of open nepotism. You know, the corruption isn't even really kept hidden. It's it's just so disgustingly out in the open. Well, the interesting thing thing about the ANC, which is... African National Congress. Congress, yeah. Is my understanding is it's not really yeah. like a normal political party that it was really more of a coalition and that perhaps its purpose mm. was for ending apartheid, but it has carried on as a non properly functioning political party. I mean, politics is a, a game a scam no matter where you go, but it's my understanding that it's this big umbrella of ideologies that, and and that's perhaps why they can't agree on anything that, is that something that you know about or? It's partly true. You know, you take an organization that is made up of cadres, people that were freedom fighters in a sense, terrorists in the eyes of others, trained in Russia, with the with communist ideology. And the strange thing is that you have this communist body fighting for the right reasons, in a sense. It's quite absurd. But there's no one in their right mind could say that ending apartheid was, was a bad idea. It's just that it wasn't replaced with anything decent. So what you had was a bunch of cadres, a bunch of communists, who 
if they were really wise, would have won freedom for their people and then would have gone about putting killed and trained people, black people, into positions of running the country. But they, they didn't do that. They just have been living off the loot of the land and giving preferential treatment to family, unskilled family. And you take a, a, a little bit of a closer look behind the scenes of the, of the ANC, you'll see the hand of the De Beers Mining Company. Mm. Um, you know, the, the Milner Group is still there. Mm-hmm. Um, the British-owned mining syndicates are still really running the country and uh, buying and paying off the politicians. Mm-hmm. So really, nothing's really changed uh, except for the puppets. And it's just another sad tale of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And in its own way, South Africa is implementing, implementing Agenda 21. Mm-hmm. I think wherever you go in the world, the, the globalization plan is being implemented, obviously. But, you know, as Carol quickly pointed out, they work with dictators. They work with, they work with everyone. Mm-hmm. So the appointment or the setting up of a, a global system just looks different in different areas. But it's, you, the closer you look around you, the more and more alike all these different countries are becoming to each other, where you might not have noticed a global effort being made in the past, especially when people were still a lot more focused on their national troubles. I mean, but, but just take a look at Justin Trudeau. I mean, he could fit into the, into the ANC in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't notice. They look, they look, you know, they're, they're doing all the same things. I really think if I look at Joe Biden, he's another, he's another, he's another Cyril Ramaphosa. It all looks, you know, as once again, as Carol Crigley said, it all looks a little bit communist, but it's not. Mm-hmm. It's globalist. My sort of message to the world, in a sense, would be to completely Forget about local politics. It's too late. Yes. Um, you've got to be looking at the, the globalists now. Yeah. You're, both sides of the political aisle are completely sold out to this international cabal or cartel. And they're going to really get nasty now. Yes, um, I, I was having a conversation yeah. with someone a few weeks yeah. ago and they said mm. it was about yeah. voting and I just said it's you know it's a waste of time. And they said, well, local politics is where you can still mm. make a difference. I said, no, you, you go yeah. down to your chamber of commerce, that's the like business coalition or your local city or town council. And this doesn't really matter if you live in a town here in this country of... 2,000 or 20,000 or 200,000, at the local level, all of the goals of Agenda 21 or, or Agenda 2030, the sustainability goals, you will see them in place, enforced in your small town. And That's, um, yeah. do, do people, I'm sure you understand it, what the globalists want to do, how the public-private partnership will work is that government will shrink back and assume almost an equal footing with the corporate world. And when I take a look at these telegram groups, getting back to those telegram groups Mm -hmm. and Twitter, you can see how they are guiding the people 
They want, they want the people to get angry. And Klaus Schwab said, he was quoted, get prepared for an angry world. They are purposefully creating crooked, they're giving people the active view of politics doesn't work anymore. National governments are bad. They're mm-hmm. terrible. Look at these politicians here. Look at these politicians there. We've got to get them out. We've got to get rid of them. And they're steering this narrative and they're using Twitter and they're using Telegram, etc. to get rid of government. You can see it. It's so orchestrated. They want people to be upset with the system as it is. Of course, they've got to switch out to a new system and the new system is public-private partnership. That means the government, government, has to be replaced with governance. That's right. Uh, so how do you how do you get people to shake? How do you get people to get rid of government? Well, you've got to make government distasteful. It's got to leave a terrible bitter taste in the mouth, and you do it by fueling it. So the narrative is steering people to it, and that's what I also saw in this in this these you know they call themselves truthers or the truth movement in these Telegram groups. They are getting sucked in. That's where the part pop is leading in. And, and I'm saying, I've been saying, my little voice has been saying, this is being done on purpose. Yes. Um, you want to bring down the government. You've been trained. You're being rallied to become anarchists in a sense. And guess who's waiting for you on the other side? Right. It's the technocrats. Yeah. It's the Elon Musks. Yeah, and, so uh, we... Go ahead. If, I, I would recommend uh, getting yourself a, a, a Twitter account. Just, really? Just be a little, <laughs> yeah, don't participate. Just become a little observer. Because uh-huh. the, you know, one way to get people to kick off the, the, the terrible bad yoke of, of politics and national government, they're switching everything across to the digital world. Yes. It's so much easier to control the narrative in this little short text-based it's quite amazing. Um, Twitter has been a massive eye-opener to me. Um, you know, it's too late to protect your privacy if you think about it. But you can just sign up in a, 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 with an account and just observe it. I highly recommend it. And, yeah. Um, you well, have I, have a, I have a few people in my life that tweet and, mm. and watch Twitter, yeah. and I'll, I'll get a little bit of... Yeah. yeah, you know, goings on from them. But you know, I, b- before we got off of that subject, I just wanted to say you were talking mm. about rallying mm. people um, f- for the end that yeah. they have already prepared for globalism, and it made me think of yeah. what went on here, January sixth, twenty twenty one. This oh, yes. ra- the, the, yeah. the capital, and how that's mm. played out in this country, and. It also made me think, you know, the, uh, a document that that is up on the website that Alan talked about a lot was the the DCDC Global Strategic Trends Program, uh, their oh, yeah. trends program from 2007 to 2036, and this was the the mm. British, uh, the UK's Ministry of Defense, and they I've talk, read that a few times, yeah, yeah, they talk in there about flash mobs, yeah. how. They give you a few scenarios as to why these flash mobs will come about. But when people allow themselves to be whipped up into a nationalistic furor or, a, you know, a, mm. you're, you are simply playing the game that they want you to play at this time. And in this country, now, it, yeah. it the t- 
talk of civil war has been going on mm. f- well at least yeah, yeah for a while now and mm. that mm. kind of rhetoric is promoted top down yeah it's even put into uh, video games into the movies mhm I-, i think if they had to enact a civil war in the united states people would automatically know what to do next they're being Pro- primed mhm mm-hmm. And And maybe throw in a a zombie apocalypse of (laughs) some sort, you know, because it always has to be zombies too, you know. Yes, yeah. And uh, don't you wonder about that one, Melissa? Zombies? Oh, yeah. What is that all about? Because, you know, it always starts off with a virus that escapes, and then (laughs) people's faces start melting off, but, you know, it's very contagious, and everyone starts shooting everyone else. I wonder what is meant by by that. Why put all that effort into creating zombie movies? Well, and they've been on the go. I mean, um the last mm. man, the last man was also known as mm. Oh, what were those movies that came, the, the last man on earth? I don't oh, remember yeah. the novelist yeah. who did it. It'll it'll come back to me in a moment, but These are ideas that have been around for a long time and and then one of the yeah. one of the things that has been going on in the medical truth movement was the idea that whatever is in the vaccine is going to interact with 5G towers and turn the people who received the there has uh, been there has yeah. been that yeah with yeah. cell phones and all that type of thing yeah And so everyone is sort of uh, set set off by a certain signal that comes through the phone, and they all get controlled or whatever. Mm-hmm. The Last Man yeah. on Earth. Now, this mm. is a, a movie that that came out. That this has been done in three or four different forms. And what's interesting here, Darren, is that they've just turned it mm. into. It was a post-apocalyptic comedy series most recently. Oh. Gosh, yeah. Yeah. So they, they, this idea of a virus in which everyone else gets turned into a, a zombie is, you know, on the go. Richard Matheson, I am legend. Oh, so, yes. yeah, yes, yes, the, yes. they had The Last Man on Earth. That was in the 60s horror movie. And then they had The Last Woman mm-hmm. on Earth. Then they had I Am Legend with Will. Oh, Will, Will Smith. Will Smith, yeah. yeah. Will Smith was in that, mm. and then now you got a TV series, and so this idea is important. What it, it means, is. and even sorry, sorry, carry on. No, go ahead. I think even the CDC had a little zombie. They they stated it on their website that it was done in, in a humorous way, and that they were using the story of a, of a zombie apocalypse to try and encourage people to follow COVID guidelines better but it was done on the CDC site in a cartoon format mm. and I just thought why go through all that effort on a very very you know this is a this is a serious it's the CDC a very very serious government organization and here it is almost wanting to entertain you I thought that's very odd you know it's, it's sinister Yeah, and there was a I, I don't yeah. recall now, but there 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 was a, a an actual tabletop mm. exercise or a document that was 
that that was about a zombie apocalypse. This was mm. a serious thing that wasn't yeah. that long ago. And yet we bring it up in a conversation and someone else will listen to us talking about it and think, well, this isn't a very, this is a bit silly. Why are you talking about that? But yet a lot of very wealthy people go through an enormous amount of trouble to create this stuff and we know why it's created. So it has to have, it has to have some kind of implementation of some sort. Maybe it's just a symbolic thing, but it's, or it's just a, you know, the zombie, the zombie part. It's the distraction. It's what happens around the, 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 it's the scenario around the apocalypse, which is actually going to be the more prescient part of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, you talk um, about a symbolic yeah. element of it. I mean, I have heard, yeah. you know, the, the this idea that, that we're under a mass hypnosis that yeah. people have been talking about for a while, that, the, that <laughs> there is an element to the last three years that is mass, uh, what do they call it, mass formation. Mm. I see. Yeah. yeah, and and it is possible that that the zombie apocalypse is their way of making an allegory or symbolizing when the masses go into some kind of transformation, you know, where they're yes. under a trance. Yeah, and then there's always the people in the story who are not affected by whatever is affecting everyone else. Mm-hmm. And they have got free license to murder, kill, shoot mm-hmm. uh, these people that who are who are zombies, and that also must have a symbolic meaning. It means there'll be an in group and an, and an out group somewhere, and it'll be clearly recognised, and it will be quite okay for the in group to annihilate an out group. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when it comes to globalisation and the the taking down of the nation state there is going to be and you see it around the world where the these so called right wing extremists are are rising up, you know, and everyone is now being told that far right wing groups around the world are are rising and you can't help but wonder if um the third world war will just simply be a whole series of civil wars breaking out around the, the world that requires the intervention of the UN mm-hmm. and I have I've made that my my thesis for now it makes sense that the global policemen of the world will, will switch to, to China who's got massive massive reserves of men and when uh, various countries break out into enormous riots and triggers into internal civil conflict that you'll need an outside trained army to come in to restore the peace, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's probably, well, that's my theory. That And, um, and you know, the, the way that Alan yeah. presented that concept mm. was that the, uh, the outside force was necessary. It was necessary for, I mean, partly they've done this psychological operation on police within our mm. own country that are supposedly your fellow yeah, citizens yeah. by yeah. simply by arming them to the teeth by militarizing your police by giving them you know so they look more like 
you know, they've got the big shield and the helmets and they're wearing black, they're enforcers or, yeah, but, but part, but just in case some sort of residual identification with their fellow citizen kicks in, that it yes. is necessary for the policing action to be done by, uh, uh, yep. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. They won't have the same sympathy. No. Um, yeah. You can see it all, all panning out. Can I get back to South Africa? There's something I've just remembered. Well, one okay. more point. Yes. And it's occurring all over the world. It's something that you hear about a lot when it comes to electricity and rolling blackouts. Ah. And um, uh, South Africa has had, we've had rolling blackouts for 16 or 17 years now. Really? Um, it, it all boils down to, well, at least in the South African theater, if you want to call it theater, the reason for it is that it's just incompetence. The country is, you know, there's so much corruption that the tendering process for building new power plants has resulted in power plants that haven't been built properly and incompetence around the delivery of coal to all these power plants, etc., etc. The nuclear power stations that we do have are not being maintained properly. So in the South African theater, it, it's just incompetence. But the president of our country, his name is Cyril Ramaphosa, and he is the brother-in-law of a, a guy, his surname is Motsepe, and he is a what they call a black diamond. So he's a, he's a billionaire. He owns, I think it's Rainbow the Gold Mines. Mm-hmm. I forget now the details, but he's a huge a mining guy, mm-hmm. extremely wealthy. And when you look into what's happening when, around the world, you can see how they're transitioning, they're, they're having this excuse of transitioning away from fossil fuel. But the very same people that are behind the, the falling out of the traditional fossil fuel sector stand to benefit from the so-called renewable side because Mitsepe is one of the leading investors in new alternate sources of energy. And essentially, he's just secured all the contracts for the greening uh, movement mm-hmm. uh, for all the alternative energy mm-hmm. sources, and he's splitting the loot with his good mate, who happens to be the president of the country. <laughs> and it's, if you look, if you look around the world, you'll see it happening in a similar way, just with different actors. Um, yes, well, I mean, you you can see too if you look into yeah. if you look closely at the international bankers, or if you look closely at yeah. some of the, like, take for instance, oil and and gas that that source of mm. you know so called fossil fuel. You see the same thing with the ESGs. So oh, the yes. yeah, yeah environmental yeah. social governance or you know that it's. Everything has got to be sustainable and woke. And they're telling yeah. you that this new corporate outlook is, you know, so that they can be more responsible and everything. But what it is, is it's the transitioning of the same people who have always controlled the wealth. So we'll exactly. have it. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So it doesn't matter how we heat ourselves or how we put, you know, it doesn't matter where we, where the source of fuel comes from. The same wealthy cabal will own it. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's something to discuss another time because there's quite a lot of there's quite a lot to discuss around just that point of uh, rolling blackouts. They're, they're switching across to alternative fuel. 
because it ties into global warming and climate change so beautifully. Mm-hmm. You can see how it's going to tack into the digital thing as well. You can start explaining it to people about how digitization uh, links up to the move away from fossil fuels and why you would need to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you see that in this country yeah, yeah. as well, and the yeah, excuse is yeah. just the oh, it's an aging infrastructure. It's just an oh, aging, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Every year, mm-hmm. and every mm-hmm. year during the height of weather, especially in the hot months in the U.S., and it was you had it in Canada as well, rolling blackouts mm-hmm. or brownouts. In Canada, it was brownouts on a routine basis. And just, people in other parts of the world would never know it's happening. In no. your country, Mm-mm. yeah, yeah. I, I've got a a little generator. I've bought a, a solar panel. I've got water tanks to collect rainwater from the roof. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it sounds good. We've been talking for another hour, and it has been a pleasure, Darren. I thank you for being so generous with your time. Thank you very much, Melissa. There's so much to say, and time passes uh, so quickly. I really appreciate how Alan was able to fit so much into each sentence. Yes. Um, I, just, I can really appreciate it now when I'm after trying to speak myself online. Well, you've done well here, and I appreciate it, and we'll give this to the listeners now, and I hope that they gain some interesting things to think about. And thank you all for listening and sharing this time with us, and I will be back next week with someone to talk to. Well, I've got something that the world didn't give me And the world cannot take it away And I've got something that the world didn't give me And the world cannot take it away Father